All right, let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 1. And tonight we are going to finish the first three verses of this letter. And we've noticed at the very beginning, at least I have, I hope that you see what I see, that this is going to be a very exhilarating study. Uh, John is a convincing writer, and he really has some profound truths to tell us about. And these things are grounded in John's personal experience. I've titled the messages on these three verses, I Know He's Real. And that's the thought that John has as he gives his readers abundant proof of the person and the work of Christ. Let's read these opening scriptures again and then we'll review for just a moment and then conclude the study of the first three verses. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The first three verses that we've read here are a personal testimony of what John knew concerning Christ. We noticed before that there is no introduction to this letter. There is no customary salutation that you find in the other letters of the Bible. John does not mention the location of the people that he's writing to. He doesn't even identify himself as he begins the letter. And so the absence of all these normal customary things that would be done in the beginning of a letter such as this are evidence that there was something very urgent, a very pressing matter that was on John's mind. Something is bothering him, and it seems that John has to get this off of his chest right away. And so in the first message, we looked at the reason for his urgency, and this was the disease in the church. Uh, There was a cancer growing in this church. There was a, a sickness of doctrine that unchecked, Uh, threatened to derail the gospel and to destroy the faith of John's converts. Now, John's concern was over one of the very first heresies that came into the church. Uh, The first apostasy that happened to the church was legalism, and that's what prompted the first church council in Acts chapter 15. Legalism was an attack on the gospel itself. our, Our faith in Christ, is that what saves us, faith alone? Or is it faith plus something else? Faith of uh, works, uh, faith and works that we do, and that was really the question concerning that first um, problem in the church. And the controversy of First John, what he is addressing here, is uh, also insidious, and it's a very uh, terrible type of doctrinal perversion. It's an attack on the gospel. In, in one way, in that it's the, an attack on the very person who is the gospel. It's on the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, John argued against those who thought that they knew something about Christ that he didn't know. And what they were attacking is the doctrine of the incarnation. It was the truth of the humanity of Christ. And that's very important because a change of in the person of Christ and who Christ is, it really, really becomes a change in the gospel because it alters the work that Christ did on the cross. It, it changes the surety of the resurrection that we have, our hope in Christ. It confuses the relationship that we have with sin. And all of that's going to be borne out as we go through uh, this epistle of 1 John. So John had to combat that. And we noticed last week in the, in the second part of the message that John began a defense of the faith. Uh, 
And his defense was based upon that personal experience. Uh, John was there. He met Christ. The false teachers weren't there. The Gnostics, that, the ones that we're talking about here, they weren't there. But yet they were saying that Christ was not really human. Some of them said that a spirit had taken over a man's body. Uh, there was a teacher uh, that had was was running around Ephesus where uh, John was teaching the people and his name was Serenthus and he was teaching that Jesus was not virgin born. He said Jesus was an ordinary man. He had a human father. And then at about the age of 30 that he became spirit possessed. Now, not demon possessed, but he came spirit possessed. And so the Holy Spirit came and took over his body and then used that body until the time of the crucifixion. Well, John was incensed at that kind of teaching. It was a very wicked proposal. Uh, Serenthus was not there. John was there. And so he gives an eyewitness account of what he had seen when he was with Christ. And so he says here in these opening verses, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. I know that he was real. I know that he's a man. I know also that he's God. And I know that he came out of the tomb in his body. And so John felt the urgency to defend what he knew because if you take away the humanity of Christ then uh, his coming into the world through the virgin birth and you falsify any aspect of Christ's deity and his humanity, then you can't have a saving gospel. Without assurance that we have complete deliverance from our sin by an all-sufficient Savior, we have no hope of eternal life. And, And as we'll see when we get to verse number four, the joy of Christians is taken away when we don't have this full confidence in who Christ is. So it's no wonder that John didn't hesitate why there are no customary greetings in this this little letter. He just gets directly to the point. And the point is you have to have the correct doctrine of Christ. You have to know what doctrine is true. You can't alter the truth of Christ. You can't have that and at the same time have a gospel that will save men from their sins. And so there is no hope of heaven unless we have a true gospel built upon the facts of the life and the death of Christ. Now, in the next few minutes, we're going to take up another couple of points here and then finish up these three verses. But I want to consider now the deity of Christ. Now, since we're in the midst of a larger study, and in the last message we talked about the humanity of Christ, I do want to mention some things that we should draw out of this passage concerning Christ's deity as it relates to his humanity. John says in verse number 1, that which was from the beginning. And there's a lot of controversy over this verse. What does it mean? What does that refer to? What beginning is John speaking of? John talking about the gospel? Is he talking about the beginning of Christianity? And there are some people who believe that that is what this first verse is speaking of. But I don't really think that's John's intent. I think that John is referring to Jesus himself. Jesus was from the beginning. And he doesn't mean the beginning of his ministry, or doesn't he's not speaking of the start of a religion called Christianity. But what he means is that Jesus is forever. Jesus Christ is forever. He was there at the beginning of everything. Before the first thing that was ever created, Jesus was. He is the great I am that we find in the scripture. So I think that John is speaking in this first verse about the pre-existence of the Son. Jesus did not begin his existence at his birth. Uh, The manger was an experience in the existence of Christ, but it wasn't his beginning. The manger is only a beginning of his humanity, and the manger is simply a point in time while Christ actually has resided outside of time. He's always been. From everlasting to everlasting, he's God. 
He's always been here. And that statement that he makes here in this first verse accords with the same thing that he said in the Gospel of John. Same type of thinking. You're familiar with this verse, uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is a statement that was being tampered with at the time that John wrote First John, and still tampered with today. I mean, one of the doctrines that all of the cults seem to have in common is that they play around with Christ's deity. Most of you know that the Jehovah Witnesses change John chapter 1, verse number 1, and they read that verse as, the Word was a God. And they teach that Christ is not the God, but he was a God. And they actually remove the capital G from the word God, and they put that a little g, uh, and saying that he's not eternally preexistent with the Father. And then the Mormons, they also tamper with this, and they say that Jesus was a created being. And even though they deny uh, the statements, and they're often accused of teaching that Jesus and Satan were brothers, and they deny that, but what they do teach is that uh, Satan and Jesus are created beings, and they were created from the same stock. They had the same underlying nature, so that one of them chose good, the other one chose evil, but the choices were not inherent in their nature. So essentially, uh, the, the charge that they're brothers pretty much holds because they believe it, uh, that they were created out of the same stock. So what we're doing is we are fighting age-old heresies, the same kinds of things that John faced way back at the very beginning, and we really ought to be as quick as John to defend the faith and stand up for what's right, and uh, anybody who claims that they have a superior knowledge of, of God, something that's not found in the Word of God, then we are to dismiss that as being heresy and not to entertain it even for a moment. I was um, amazed... A few weeks ago, I was talking with uh, Jason Guritz, and they've been looking for a church in South Carolina, and they've been attending, they're attending one there. Uh, it's a church that's had been in a lot of turmoil over the past few years, and they're getting that straightened out. But Jason was telling me that in this Baptist church, there was once a Jehovah Witness who was teaching Sunday school. Now, that just shows you the kind of degradation of, of doctrine that's going on in our Baptist churches today. I mean, it's really hard to find churches that teach the truth. Now, we're not the only one, thank the Lord for that, but it's hard to find churches that have not compromised the gospel of Christ. And in most churches, uh, the members could not articulate the gospel enough clearly to explain to somebody how to be saved. Hold a gun to their heads, and they probably wouldn't be able to tell you what the gospel is. So they're clueless about what Scripture teaches. But it must be believed. This is not an optional thing. It must be believed that Jesus is the eternal Son. He was God. He's God from the beginning. Not the beginning of time, but he's the one who began time. Paul said to the Colossians, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So is it really important to believe that Jesus is God and that he was a man? I mean, couldn't we just dismiss this or make, at least make it a side feature of Christianity? And if you believe it, that's okay. If you don't, don't worry about it because it really doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't have any bearing on salvation. And that's what a lot of people are teaching. But you've heard the arguments before um, why uh, we have to believe that Jesus is eternal and that he is God himself. But one of the simplest arguments I think that there is, and I'm not going to 
course, go into it in detail. But the simplest arg- argument about it is that Jesus said he was God. And if he's not, then he's a liar. And that would make Jesus a sinner. And sinners can't save other sinners from their sins. And so Jesus has to be the perfect Savior. And if he had any personal sin, such as being a liar, then he has no moral authority. He's blemished. And God requires a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus had to keep God's law perfectly because the righteousness that he earned during his life is the righteousness that gets transferred to us when we trust him as Savior. And the scripture says, without holiness, there's no man that will see God. So the preexistence of Christ is a doctrine that's upheld by these opening verses. Then we also see that the verses teach the incarnation of the Son. And if you remember, one of the heresies that was bothering the church was Gnosticism that claimed that the material body is evil. And so it's inconceivable that God should ever come to this earth in a human body. And so in order to support that uh, theory, they had made various proposals, such as that as of Serenthus, the one who said that the Holy Spirit had just possessed the body. And then there were others that had different ideas, some a little bit less sophisticated. Some said that he just appeared to be human. He was an illusion. And so they said there is no incarnation. And if there's no incarnation, then there's no need for the virgin birth. Well, John had no patience with this. And this is why he speaks of seeing and hearing and touching Christ. Well, is the incarnation an important doctrine? Is he God in the flesh and Is the virgin birth of Christ actually necessary? Well, this is another doctrine where, you know, we could give a lot of proofs about this, but we could shorten the stroke a little bit here, and we could say that if the Old Testament is true and we are to believe the Bible, then Christ must be incarnate, and he must be the virgin-born Son of God. It's what Isaiah stated 700 years before his time. He said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called God with us. So if the Bible is true, this has to happen. But why must it happen beyond the necessity of just giving verification to Old Testament Scripture and the prophecies that were spoken well it's important because this is the method by which God takes away the sinfulness of man the incarnation is necessary so that there would be a redeemer one who is a near kinsman to us he's made like us and we can argue such things as well could God have devised some other plan is there some other way that God could take away sin and I've often thought about that And we would probably be tempted to say that because he's God and God can do anything, that yes, well, there could have been another plan that God could have used. He just decided to use this one. But I actually think that that would be wrong because if there could have been another way, then it means that God didn't choose the right way. It can't be either or, or we end up with truth that's either or. So we don't need to really speculate on other methods that could have been used to redeem man, there can be no other method. This is the only one that there is. And so somehow, some way, in the way that God created man and then permitted man to fall, that there had to be a man who would come who would be able to satisfy God's justice for sin. And that man had to be perfect as God is perfect because God is holy. And the only thing that he accepts is nothing less than complete righteousness. Well, there are a multitude of ways that we could approach that. But in the end, according to Scripture, it just says the just must die for the unjust. 
That's necessary for our sins to be forgiven. And so if man is to be brought back into a state of innocence and to fellowship with God, this has to be the method. And so God has determined only flesh can die for flesh, and forgiveness of sin can't be obtained without satisfaction to the perfect justice of God. So this is why we see what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. He said, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so there we see the, see the, the proof, just for the unjust. And Peter says, it was done in the flesh. And so Peter attested John's statement in another way. This is flesh and blood that died for sin. And so if Christ was God, then he has to be both man and God. So he is a spirit and he was flesh. And the scripture simply cannot allow for a denial of Christ's humanity. He has to have a body. Now that would mean that if he has to have a body, then it has to be a body that's a sinless body. He must have a body that doesn't have a sinful nature because a man blemished with sin, as I said a moment ago, has no moral authority. You can't remove the sins of sinful man with another sinful man. And so since all people are sinners at birth, this is what the scripture teaches, then how could Christ becoming flesh make him also anything other than a sinner? Well, this is the dilemma that's solved by the virgin birth, and that's why it's so important. It's because the sin nature is passed from person to person through the father. Your mother is a sinner because your father was a sinner, but your mother is not the one who passes the sin nature to you. And that's why the scripture always talks about the sin of Adam and it uh, doesn't talk anything about the sin of Eve. I mean, other than to mention it. In Romans it says that in Adam all died. It doesn't say in Eve all die. And we all know Eve actually sinned before Adam did and yet Eve is never charged with transmitting sin to the human race. So the two main reasons why there has to be a virgin birth are that God must come in human form in order to die, to go to the cross, and then he has to be a sinless human, and so therefore he has to have the virgin birth. So Mary was not impregnated by Joseph. She's impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So all at one time we have God as the Father, and at the same time Jesus does not inherit a sinful nature because God has no sin. So Jesus then was as human as you and I, but without the sinful nature. And uh, without a sinful nature, it meant that he could live a perfect life. And so then he could earn that righteousness by obedience to God's law. And then again, that is the righteousness, earned righteousness, is the kind of righteousness that's transferred to us in order to... um, take our sins away that's the righteousness that we need so man has to have a perfect righteousness in order to to be pleasing to God but God can't just simply give him righteousness I mean he can't give him intrinsic righteousness and I mean that the righteousness that belongs to God alone because that type of righteousness is non-transferable and so he has to have a different righteousness and that's the earned righteousness that Christ had by living a perfect life so that's what Christ did in his human life. And in, in his human life, he kept the law and he earned righteousness that's transferred to us by faith. So faith is that vehicle of transference, and that's why we say we're justified by faith. And justification is just another way of saying that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. But we have to go a step further than that, and we have to say that justification is by faith alone. 
Now, Roman Catholicism, just to give you one example, says that works have to be added to our faith. And they say that we're not just, they say we are justified by faith, but not by faith alone. There are other things that have to be thrown in. But we reject that. We reject that as being a perversion of the gospel. And really, it's not even a gospel at all. If that was true, then it would negate the whole reason for the virgin birth and for the perfect life of Christ. And simply, if we can do what Christ did, then why do we need Christ? And I think it's passing strange that Catholicism is so adamant about the doctrine of the virgin birth. They appear to be very orthodox about it, and yet they undermine that, that the teaching at every available opportunity. When they exalt Mary, for instance, and they claim that Mary had no original sin, that undermines the person and work of Christ. But John has no tolerance for this. It might even be the reason that when you read the Gospel of John and also the Gospel of Mark, there is no mention of the virgin birth of Christ. There's no mention of Mary in the picture. And we shouldn't take from that that it wasn't important because we'd be foolish to think that John didn't think the virgin birth was important. I mean, this is what we're discussing here. He absolutely did think it was important. But could it be that he excluded Mary from his gospel account because Mary has nothing at all to do with our salvation. And the absence of Mary is conspicuous in those two gospel accounts because if she is necessary and she is an intercessor for us and her holiness is essential to us, then certainly John would have made that a very important point of his gospel and probably would have come over to the book of First John and mentioned it there as well. But we don't have any mention of that. So there are two very important doctrines that come out of the first three verses, the preexistence and the incarnation of the Son. But there's yet another doctrine that we see here, and this is the eternality of the Son. In verse 2 it says, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice there that John says, We show unto you eternal life which was with the Father. Now there John is giving us another look at Christ's preexistence. He said he was eternally with the Father. And again, verse number 1 says that's from the beginning. But we also see here what the book of Hebrews calls the power of an endless life. Now, John speaks here using the present tense. And in verse number 3, he says, Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, Our fellowship is with God, but was with the Son, because now the Son is dead. It was great knowing him, it was great hearing him, great seeing him, great touching him. Too bad that he's dead. No, John is speaking in the present tense here, and he's speaking of a living Christ. He knew that Christ was a man. He was crucified, put into a tomb, and he is the man that now lives and fellowships with us even as we fellowship with the Father. So all of this is coming together in John's argument. Now, the heretics were teaching that God could not have a material body in what's called a hypostatic union, only that God could inhabit a body separately as a spirit, and he could not join with the body in an essential union And so he could only come and take a body for a brief time. That's only why the body is living, and then the spirit has to leave the body behind. 
But as we saw before, as we were studying this, John and others were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And they said, we saw Christ in the material body. And not only did we see him, but he invited us to touch him so that we would know that he was real. So here, John is attesting to the eternal nature of Christ's spirit and also that he had a living material body, and that living material body has now become a permanent part of his person. So when we get to heaven, we're going to see Christ in his body. We won't see him as a spirit. He's the manifestation of God. And so when John says, we show unto you eternal life, then he doesn't mean that when you die, that you're going to be a spirit that just floats around somewhere, and you go off and you live forever He means that your body will arise as well. The body and the spirit will rejoin. And he reiterates that in chapter 3 when he says that we shall be like him and will see him as he is. As he is relates to the material glorified body. So then he's teaching that Jesus is the eternal Christ. And the promise is that we have fellowship with him. And because he lives, we also live. We have fellowship and we'll enjoy it forever. So I think what John is telling these people is these false teachers think they know something. They claim to know something. But what they teach will not bring you hope. It will destroy your hope. Because if Christ did not have a material body, then your sins haven't been paid for. And if his body did not come out of the grave, then you can have no fellowship with God. Now I said way back in the very beginning that Paul and John say the same things It's just that they have a different way of arriving at the same conclusions. So this is the doctrine that's not so subtly taught in verses 1 through 3. Now, let's look at another aspect of truth that's taught in these verses. Number 4 is the declaration of the gospel. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. One of the most important realizations of truth is The truth of the gospel is the concrete nature of the gospel. The gospel is not subjective. When I preach, when we talk about the gospel, I don't get up to give you concepts that you can mull over and swish around in your brain trying to draw some kind of conclusions from them. And finally, if you can convince yourself of this, you'll be happy and then you'll be at peace. Now, a a metaphysical... Uh, gospel depends on that and, a, and, a, and mysticism depends on it but the gospel of Christ is a totally objective gospel it's based upon what's observable what's dem- demonstrable and what is historical fact and that's why John says so clearly we heard him, we saw him, we touched him so John's like a reporter he gives you facts and you interpret the facts the Gnostics on the other hand would tell you that you have higher power of the mind And the way that you find your inner peace is that you finally have victory over the material man and you exercise the power of your mind. So are you sick? Well, maybe not. That's just a state of your mind. And are you poor? Maybe not. Think positively and your thoughts could actually become your reality. But all that's nonsense. We're real and sickness is real and poverty is real and heartache is real. It's all real because sin is real. And the remedy for all of those conditions is just as real so that you can see it, you can hear it, and you can touch it. And so John doesn't say, I think this is so, and and I'm weighing all the possibilities to see if it's so. There's none of that. He says, this we declare unto you. This is certainty. Now, isn't that a problem that we have with 
wishy-washy preaching? Where's the certainty of what's being preached? I mean, where's the preachers, where are the preachers today that say, well, this is right and that's wrong? And where are people that are still preaching moral, absolute truth, and that truth is constant, it's consistent and unchanging for all time? And where are those who teach that unless you have that one truth alone, then the fires of hell are the only alternative? You don't find much of that anymore. But that's the way John preached. So we could call that the certainty of knowledge, the certainty of what he knew. So John didn't preach with just a smorgasbord of options. I mean, he wasn't a member of the Truth of the Month Club. And, and that's what we have, you know, with, with churches today. You, you get to choose your truth. What's behind door number one, door number two, or door number three? That's your truth for today. Spin the wheel like Wheel of Fortune and where it lands and you have your truth. So we're not too sure, they say, about doctrines of the Bible. We're not too sure about the atonement of Christ. We're not too sure about the virgin birth. We're not really sure about divorce. And we're not sure about ethics. We're not too sure about where we stand on any of this. You know, uh, Brian Petro uh, some time ago was talking to me about how he had spoken to a local pastor and asked him about eternal security. And the pastor's answer was, does it matter? So nobody knows anything anymore, do they? I mean, I love the way that that Steve Lawson, he's a pastor from Alabama, Baptist Church down in Alabama, and uh, he was preaching at the Shepherds Conference last year, and he was speaking on what preachers know to be the uncompromising truth of the Word of God. And he was quoting from an interview that was was, uh, with Joel Osteen, and when Osteen was asked, is Jesus the only way to heaven? He replied, I don't know. And time after time, there were questions that were asked to him in a very pointed manner, and, manner and, and time after time, his answers were consistently, I don't know. That's a problem, isn't it? Pulpits are filled with preachers that just don't know. And, and the question is, what are they doing preaching if they don't know? I mean, would you feel very comfortable if I got up here and told you that before we start the sermon tonight, I'm not too sure about what I'm preaching here. I just don't know if this is true or not. Or ended the sermon that way. There's my sermon. Take it or leave it. I don't know if it's true. Well, that's no help for anybody. The Bible is sure. The Bible is concrete. We have an objective faith. There's certainty to this. There are things that we know. And if you don't know them, you're in a heap of trouble, boy. You're in trouble. John said, we know. What we know, we declare to you. We're sure of this. And you know what he's sure of? Here's what it is for all the girly men preachers. There's one way to get to God, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one name that'll save us, and that's the God-man who gave his life for sin. And you come that way, and he takes away your sin, or you don't get there any other way. That's as simple as I can put it. That's what we know. That's the objective truth of the Scriptures. So they say they don't know. I know. I know hell is real. And I don't think that hell is a place where you don't get chocolate bars and you end up thinking bad thoughts and you get inconvenienced a little. Hell is torment forever. Hell is a fire that lasts forever without a split second of any relief. And to that I can say I'm certain. I know that, whether Joel Osteen knows it or not. Now the second observation about the declaration of the gospel is the authority of knowledge. Why are we certain about this? I'm certain about it because of the authority. Osteen's not my authority. Billy Graham's not my authority. I'm not going to take some preacher's word because he 
has a big church somewhere, I take my authority from the apostles. I take it from their witness. John is the one who said, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him, and this is what we declare unto you. So what they knew is what I want to know, and I'm not going to trust anybody else unless they're repeating what the apostles saw and heard and touched. And don't ever trust my message unless I'm relating to you the very same thing, the very same message. I'm not here to express an opinion. I'm not here to give you options about what you can believe. I'm here to declare the very same thing that they saw, heard, and touched. And if it's not in the Scriptures, then, and, and not given by their testimony and others like them, then it's not to be believed. And then let me say this also. You know, there, there are people everywhere that are seeking for something. They're, they're trying to find out the truth or what they would call truth. And so they have their opinions and they're thinking about things and they draw their conclusions on things. And they draw them from one authority. This is what I think. I think, therefore, I am. And so the authority is a self-authority. You know, the amazing thing about that is that everybody thinks that's okay. It's okay if you're the authority and you know nothing at all. In all the history of the world, there have not been so many thinkers that have settled on their beliefs because they had a bad pizza night. I mean, there's nobody like this. People are dumber than rocks, and of that I'm totally certain. At least a rock has the good sense to keep still and keep his mouth shut. Now, thirdly and lastly, is the reality of knowledge. There's only one reason why John cares to declare anything. And that is he wants you to know what he found out. And the knowledge that he gives can be as real to you as it was to him. How does that happen? Well, here's where it steps outside of you. This is where it's not anything that's born from inside of you, not something you can actually grasp and hold on to and actually know. This is something that comes from outside of you because there's someone who gives you the faith to accept the reality of the testimony. And when that faith is given by God, it is so uncommon that there aren't any more questions. Is it true? Is it to be believed? Oh, when God gives you faith... You stop trusting your crusty brain about it and you believe what you're told. And that belief actually becomes real to you so that it's as if you actually did see him with your own eyes and you did hear him with your own ears and you felt him touch you. And it'll be as real as me standing right here in front of you. But how do we know? I mean, how do we know that it's real? I mean, what is it that happens that convinces us all of this is real? Well... It's because it changes you. You start to think differently. You act differently. Your desires are different. Nothing satisfies you except knowing more and more about Christ. And so those Christians that before you couldn't stand, they're the ones that, you know, you didn't want to be around because of all their good, goody-two-shoe habits. Those Christians now become your friends. And the God that you never cared anything about at all, he's the one now that you want to glorify. And the Jesus that you never mentioned, except when you were going to use his name in a curse word or a bad expression, he's the one that influences all of your conversations. This is how we know it's real, because it changes us. It turns us inside out. It makes us something new. And you see how he puts it here? Verse number three, your fellowship is with us, Christians. Your fellowship is with the Father. That's the one you want to glorify. And your fellowship is with the Son, Jesus Christ, He's the one that you can't stop talking about. And so when faith comes, it comes with certainty and authority 
and reality. Now, friends, I hope you know what John knows. Praise God, the doubts are settled, and I know, I know he's real. And I hope you have that in your heart as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for time spent in your word and what glorious truths that we have here about Jesus. We have a faith that is real because we have a Savior that is real. And we thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to our hearts. You've touched us with that faith. You've given it to us. And now we have the realization of who you are, and we are absolutely certain, no doubts in our mind, about who you are and what you came to do for us. Lord, I pray that that truth would be imparted to others. You'd speak to hearts, and Lord, just help us to have the real certainty of knowing you as we should know you. So bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you again for being here, and bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.